welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation or topic we'll be covering today is cholangiocarcinoma. I thought this topic followed on nicely from our topic on gallbladder cancer because this is another malignancy of the biliary tract. It's very uncommon and it can occur from any point of the biliary tree. So this includes the common bile duct, the periampullary region, the hyla region, and even the intrahepatic bile ducts. About 10% of cholangiocarcinoma is found in the intrahepatic location, 40 to 60% at the biliary confluence or in the hilum, and the rest in the common bile duct. In terms of the risk factors for the development of cholangiocarcinoma, I like to think about them as situations that cause chronic inflammation that affects the biliary epithelium. So some specific conditions that predispose to the development of cholangiocarcinoma include primary sclerosing cholangitis or PSC, recurrent cholangitis and cholidocolithiasis, the presence of a cholidocal cyst or cholidocal cysts, hepatolithiasis, so stones in the liver, which is common in endemic areas in Asia with Asian liver fluke infections. Conditions of inflammation in the liver, such as chronic hepatitis infections, HIV, Epstein-Barr virus, cirrhosis from any cause, heavy alcohol use, type 2 diabetes, smoking, and also biliary enteric anastomoses. In terms of classification of cholangiocarcinoma, I have briefly mentioned this, but essentially it can be considered intrahepatic and extrahepatic. And in the extrahepatic section, we have perihylar or distal cholangiocarcinoma. Obviously, this classification system is just thinking about the location of the tumor. Another classification system that can be used is based on the macroscopic growth pattern of the tumor. And this splits it up into mass forming, periductal infiltrating, or intraductal. Mass forming is where you get an exophytic mass or nodule that forms off the bile duct or off the biliary tree where the tumor has originated. Periductal infiltrating is most common along the hilum, and this is where you get tumor that, as the name suggests, infiltrates along the duct itself. This often isn't associated with a mass, but you may see abnormalities along the wall of the duct, and these can narrow the duct and cause proximal dilatation. Intraductal tumors are characterized by an abrupt change in the caliber of the duct, with or without a visible mass within the duct. And if there is a mass in the duct, it usually looks like a little polyp within the duct. So how might these patients present? Depends a little bit on the location of the tumor. So in distally located or perihylar tumors, often the presentation will be with jaundice. However, for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas, patients may not have any jaundice. Common other features include right upper quadrant pain, weight loss, and constitutional symptoms. These tumors can also incidentally be found on imaging. If you're suspecting a cholangiocarcinoma, your workup should start with a history and examination, looking for any of those risk factors that I've already talked about. 
Some blood tests that could be done include an AFP level, which is a test used to look at hepatocellular carcinoma. And especially if you have an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, one of the differentials you need to rule out is a hepatocellular carcinoma. CEA, CA125 and CA199 can also be sent as these are tumor markers, but they're not necessarily specific markers for cholangiocarcinoma. Options for imaging for cholangiocarcinoma include a biliary tract ultrasound, which is often done as a first test investigation. And you may be able to see a mass or a site of narrowing or dilated biliary tree proximal to the tumor or to the stricture. The next step usually is a CT, chest abdopelvis, with intravenous contrast. And depending on the location of the tumor, you may want to do arterial and portal venous phases in order to get an idea about any vascular involvement. On CT scan, you may be able to see the primary tumor, which obviously will depend on what type of tumor it is. So for mass-forming cholangiocarcinomas, you might see a low attenuation lesion on the non-contrast scans, which may have some peripheral enhancement on the contrast scans with progressive filling, which really depends on the degree of central fibrosis of the tumor. For periductal infiltrating, you may see a thickened duct wall with proximal duct dilation and similar for intraductal tumors with an abrupt cutoff of the duct caliber and proximal dilatation. The CT chest is also useful to look for sites of metastatic disease. The next test is an MRI or an MRCP scan, which is useful for giving you information about the ductal system as well as soft tissue information about the surrounding structures. Typically on T1 imaging, a cholangiocarcinoma will be hypo-intense and on T2, it will be hyper-intense. And you may also be able to find evidence on the MRI of intrahepatic metastatic disease, information about the lymph nodes, and evidence of growth along the biliary tree in more information than you may get from a CT scan. PET is not funded for cholangiocarcinoma in Australia as far as I can find, but I have seen it done um, for one case, so I guess that's something to be discussed at the MDT. Also, just briefly mention the pattern of metastatic spread for cholangiocarcinoma. It's common to have multiple intrahepatic metastases and often if there's an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma you may see a lot of sort of daughter lesions or intrahepatic metastatic lesions and there can be vascular involvement early with these tumors. Typically about 50% of patients will present with lymph node metastases and the tumor also spreads hematogenously to the lungs, bones, especially to the vertebrae, to the adrenals and also to the brain. The other thing to mention is the role of other ductal imaging modalities, such as ERCP, endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, or PTC, percutaneous transhepatic cholangiography. These imaging modalities are obviously invasive, um, and there needs to be some specialty input about whether or not these are warranted. Some potential benefits is that you can get more information about the ductal system and where narrowings are. It may also give you an opportunity to do brushings, which could give you the diagnosis if you find malignant cells in the brushings. The other thing that's important to think about, and again, why a hepatobiliary specialist really needs to be involved in this decision making, is 
consideration that if you access with ERCP an area of the liver that you might not be able to drain in the future, that you can seed bacteria into there and patients will have problems with recurrent cholangitis. And I've definitely seen this happen. So all of this decision-making is actually much more complex than it appears. And if you're going to have a patient that is going to be resected, there's some controversy about whether or not to drain uh, the patient and improve their bilirubin preoperatively. And that depends a little bit on their resectability, on their fitness for surgery, and um, as well on how high their bilirubin is, because some surgeons may not want to preoperatively drain these patients. Talking about tissue biopsy it's not necessary that you 100% have a tissue biopsy prior to surgery if it's very clear that this is a malignant process and the patient is resectable. If you have an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, there's a risk of seeding tumor cells if you do a percutaneous biopsy of the lesion. So if they don't have metastatic disease, it should be considered very closely whether or not that's something you want to undertake. Another option if uh, ERCP or PTC and brushings doesn't give you the answer is an endoscopic ultrasound with a uh, FNA of any obvious tumor cell along the wall of the duct. But obviously that has to be accessible via EUS and usually you wouldn't be doing a uh, transperitoneal biopsy in that case due to the risk of seeding. So for the next part of this podcast, I want to talk about a special grading system that exists just for hyalur cholangiocarcinoma and also some important features to look for in imaging when looking at a hyalur cholangiocarcinoma to decide whether or not it may or may not be resectable. And also I'm going to talk about the staging of cholangiocarcinoma. So the grading system that exists for hyalur cholangiocarcinoma, which also has the name Klatskin's tumors is the bismuth classification, B-I-S-M-U-T-H. The bismuth classification stages or grades hyalocalangiocarcinomas in type 1, 2, 3, and 4. For all of these types of tumors, the tumor is present in the hepatic duct, in the common hepatic duct. And the staging just talks about its involvement of the confluence and the left and right hepatic ducts. It's worth looking up a picture of this grading system to get a better idea about what I'm talking about. Type 1 lesions are limited to the common hepatic duct, distal to the confluence of the right and left ducts. Type 2 involves the confluence of the right and left hepatic ducts. Type 3, the tumor involves one of the hepatic ducts. To Type 3B involves the left hepatic duct and type 3A involves the right hepatic duct. And type 4 is where the tumor invades both the right and left hepatic ducts. And these tumors are mostly unresectable. So when thinking about cholangiocarcinoma and especially those involving the hilum, but also this does cross over a little bit with proximal intrahepatic and bile duct tumors, some things to look at are the involvement of the bile ducts and where specifically the tumor involves, any involvement of the portal vein, and any involvement of the hepatic artery. 
So when thinking about the bile ducts, you want to have a look at whether the tumor is just confined to the common bile duct, just to the hepatic duct, or any of the right or left hepatic ducts or both. And you want to have a look and see further if it involves any second order radicals. And this is really important because this determines whether or not the tumor might be resectable because you need to have adequate drainage from one part of the liver in order to have a resectable tumor. The portal vein is the next important structure to assess and the portal venous imaging on the CT scan may be helpful to look at this. And the question is whether there's any abutment of the portal vein, any encasement, um, whether this is the main portal vein or the branches, the left and right portal veins, and what extent is involved. The next thing to look at is the hepatic artery. Is the common hepatic artery or the hepatic artery proper involved and to what extent? And are either of the left or right hepatic arteries involved and to what extent? And the other thing to look for is whether there's any aberrant arterial anatomy. As we talked about in the first episode on HPB, there can be some common variations that may allow segments of the liver to be supplied even though the um, common hepatic artery is involved. Another thing to look at is whether there's any liver metastases and also whether there is any enlarged regional or distant nodes. So talking about nodes and metastases, let's move on to talking about staging of cholangiocarcinoma. And there's three different staging systems. One is for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. The second looks at the perihyla or Klatskin's tumors. And the third looks at distal cholangiocarcinoma. These are all TNM staging systems from the AJCC 8th edition cancer guidelines. So the first to talk about is the TNM staging system for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. So this labels T1A tumors as solitary tumors less than or equal to five centimeters in size with no evidence of vascular invasion. And T1B tumors are solitary tumors more than five centimeters in size without any evidence of vascular invasion. T2 tumors are a solitary tumor with intrahepatic vascular invasion or multiple tumors with or without vascular invasion. T3 is where the tumor perforates the visceral peritoneum. And T4 is where the tumor involves local extrahepatic structures by direct invasion. N0 is no regional lymph node metastases and N1 is regional lymph node metastases. And M0 is no distant METs with M1 being distant METs present. The second staging system to talk about is staging for perihylar cholangiocarcinoma. Tumors are considered perihylar if they originate from the main lobar extrahepatic bile ducts, so the left and right hepatic ducts, down to where the cystic duct enters into the common hepatic duct to turn into the common bile duct. So that sort of middle section from the left and right hepatic down to where the cystic duct joins in are considered perihylar cholangiocarcinomas. So these tumors are divided up into T1, which is where the tumor is confined to the bile duct and it can extend all the way up to the muscle layer or fibrous tissue of the bile duct. T2 is where the tumor invades beyond the wall of the bile duct to surrounding fat or liver. So T2A is where it invades into the surrounding adipose tissue and T2B is where it invades into adjacent liver. 
T3 is where the tumor invades unilateral branches of either the portal vein or hepatic artery. And T4 is where the tumor invades the main portal vein or its bilateral branches or the common hepatic artery. Or if it is involving unilateral second order biliary radicals, but has contralateral portal vein or hepatic artery involvement. N1 is where one to three lymph nodes are positive. N2 is where four or more lymph nodes are positive. And these nodes need to be regional, which are considered hilar, cystic duct, common bile duct, hepatic artery, posterior pancreaticoduodenal, and portal vein lymph nodes. And M0 is no METs and M1 is distant metastatic disease. So we're nearly there. Last one. So the last one is for distal cholangiocarcinoma. So these are tumors that are distal to where the cystic duct joins in to form the common bile duct. So these tumors are classified again with TNM. T stage is T1, where the depth of invasion into the wall of the bile duct is less than five millimeters. T2 is where depth of invasion is five to 12 millimeters. And T3 is where the depth of invasion is more than 12 millimeters. T4 tumors involve the celiac axis or superior mesenteric artery. For nodes, N1 is met in one to three regional lymph nodes, and N2 is met in more than or equal to four regional lymph nodes, with regional lymph nodes being considered cystic duct, um, pericolidocal, hilar, peripancreatic head, periduodenal, periportal, celiac, and supramesenteric nodes. And M0 is no distant METs, with M1 being distant metastatic disease. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be printing out all of these TNM staging systems for all the different types of cancers and putting it on my list of things to revise just before the exam. So let's talk about the treatment of cholangiocarcinoma. This is relatively complex, um, and I guess... Before this year's exam, probably this would have been considered subspecialty management. However, it did come up in the oral vivas this year, so I guess everything is fair game. So like all surgical oncology treatment pathways, there's a number of options. These include medical, interventional, surgical, and palliative treatments. The choice of which treatment pathway to go down depends on a number of factors. The first of these is where the tumor is, so whether it's intrahepatic, perihylar, or distal cholangiocarcinoma, as well as the tumor's resectability, which really depends on its location and certain local factors, whether there's any evidence of metastatic disease, and obviously the fitness of the patient for any interventions. So let's talk about each of the locations of tumors and what makes them potentially irresectable. So starting with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, the main consideration about resectability has to do with leaving an adequate liver remnant. So you have to make an assessment about whether you can completely remove the tumor and leave sufficient functional liver to maintain the liver function for that patient. Patients who have multiple bilobar liver tumors, 
have obvious extensive lymph node metastases, especially beyond those regional lymph nodes, or who have evidence of extrahepatic metastatic disease would all be considered irresectable. The next group to look at is the hyalur tumors. These tumors are considered unresectable if you have a bismuth type 4 tumors with involvement of both left and right hepatic ducts, especially if there's involvement up to the secondary biliary radicals. If there's involvement of the main portal vein, especially if there's an encasement or occlusion. If there's atrophy of one of the main lobes of the liver with contralateral portal vein or hepatic artery encasement. And especially if you have atrophy of a liver lobe with contralateral secondary biliary radical involvement, involvement of both hepatic arteries, and also obviously if there's any extensive nodal or metastatic disease, these tumors would all be considered unresectable. For the distal extrahepatic bile ducts, these usually present earlier with obstruction and jaundice. So they usually present at an earlier stage. If there's involvement of the portal vein or the hepatic artery, then these tumors may be unresectable. If you have a tumor that is resectable, then complete resection has the best outcome. The principles of resection of cholangiocarcinoma are that you want to get an R0 resection, so completely clear margins. And this should involve resection of the involved biliary tract and on-block removal of any adjacent liver that's involved. These patients should also have a regional lymphadenectomy. Other things to consider are a frozen section of the bile duct margin prior to reconstructing to make sure that the resection margin is clear. And if you are doing a resection, it's important, as I've already mentioned, to consider the future liver remnant. And there are some options preoperatively to try to improve the future liver remnant, such as portal vein embolization. Some patients at time of surgery may be considered unresectable due to evidence of peritoneal or liver metastases, and so some surgeons will advocate for an initial laparoscopy for exploration to confirm resectability prior to performing laparotomy. And the type of operation to perform depends on the location of the tumour. So for a intrahepatic tumour, then a liver resection, usually a segmental or anatomical liver resection is required. For a hyalocholangiocarcinoma, it depends on what is involved. If the confluence is not involved, such as with a bismuth type 1 tumor, then an extrahepatic bile duct resection with a hepaticogegenostomy may be performed. But if one side of the liver, the left or the right side of the ducts, is involved, then a hemihepatectomy, including that side, and the extrahepatic bile duct resection may be required with a hepaticogegenostomy to the contralateral sides duct to reconstruct um, and allow drainage of the remnant liver. For a mid-bile duct tumour, such as um, the proximal common bile duct, then excision of the extrahepatic biliary tree may be performed, and this could be reconstructed with a hepaticogegenostomy as well. And if you have a distal bile duct tumor, especially periampullary tumor, then a Whipple's procedure may be required to completely remove this tumor. A couple of other things to mention, I did briefly mention it earlier in the episode, but there is some controversy about whether to decompress the bile duct or the biliary tree prior to surgery. 
There is a potential morbidity associated with preoperative biliary drainage. Some studies have shown an increased postoperative infectious complication rate, um, but other people think that biliary drainage is important in order to improve the function of the residual liver and also to improve that patient's nutrition prior to surgery. Um, and the other thing is that it may also reduce the likelihood of postoperative liver failure after surgery. So it really does depend on a case-by-case basis and discussion at the MDT. The other surgical option I haven't talked about yet is liver transplant, which interestingly is a potentially curative option for intrahepatic and perihilar cholangiocarcinoma. This should be considered in patients who have tumors that are less than two centimeters in size and who also have concomitant cirrhosis. I haven't seen this done routinely in Australia, but it's something interesting to think about. After resection of a resectable tumor, the next question is whether or not you should give these patients adjuvant treatment. Unfortunately, this is a very rare tumor, so there's not good data about whether or not um, adjuvant treatment is required. There is some evidence that for high-risk disease, patients should be given adjuvant capsidabine treatment. So high-risk recurrent tumors include tumors that are more than five centimeters in size, evidence of perineural or lymphovascular invasion, if there's lymph node involvement, and if there's positive resection margins. Even for patients who present with resectable disease, the prognosis of this tumor is pretty poor. The five-year survival rate for extrahepatic bile duct cancer is about 10%, with early diagnosis at a lower stage having a 15% five-year survival and metastatic disease having a 2% five-year survival. And the outcome for intrahepatic bile duct cancers is similar. For patients who present with unresectable cholangiocarcinoma or metastatic disease, there are systemic therapy options for these patients. The first-line treatment is cisplatin and gemcitabine for these patients, with second-line options including Folfox chemotherapy, and also considering whether or not these patients could enter into a clinical trial. Patients who have intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma are also potentially candidates for local-regional therapies, such as radiofrequency ablation, hepatic artery infusion of chemotherapy or TACE, and even radiotherapy spheres. There are also potential surgical options for patients depending on their symptoms and the location of the tumour. For example, patients with a mid or distal bile duct tumor may have a hepaticojejunostomy as a palliative biliary drainage procedure. And patients can also have ERCP or PTC and stenting in order to drain any jaundice with um, bare metal stents that can serve as a palliative procedure. And the last thing I'll mention is the follow-up for these patients who have been resected. Unfortunately, because this tumor has a poor prognosis, it does have a risk of recurrence, and this can actually be even out into the longer term. So patients should have cross-sectional imaging every six months for the first two years, and then yearly for the rest of their lives. And that's it for cholangiocarcinoma. Thanks so much for listening to me today. Please remember to leave me a review, rate the podcast and subscribe to the program. It makes it easier for other people to find. Mm-hmm.
it's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!